the swamp. This is DC, bitches. I feel like Donald Trump. I say what I want. I go where I want. You are in the swamp with Marcella Aberdeen and Karina Gutierrez. Hi and welcome to the swamp. This is Marcella and this is Karina. We're back in Georgetown today. They made it back to Georgetown. We're back here on Cecil. Um, we have some really special guests with us today. We're going to be talking to Greg Speed of America Votes um, and Krishana Davis, who is the communication manager at America Votes. We're going to be talking about things surrounding voter rights, um, redistricting, voter ID. So we're really going to get into some interesting topics, especially in light of some of the recent congressional um, special elections. So it'll be an interesting discussion. Um, just to, to give a little background on Greg, who's here with us, he's the president of America Votes. Um, he has led it, at, and he was previously executive director since late 2007. He also served as a communications director for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in the 2004 election cycle. And um, Greg worked as a press secretary for Congressman Martin Frost during his tenure at the Democratic Caucus Chair. So thank you for joining us, Greg and Krishana. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Um, we're just going to start out with some swamp tea, though. Yeah, let's get into some swamp tea. <laughs> Art, the local gossip. Swamp tea. So we travel to Starbucks. 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 Okay, so the headline is Marco Rubio and Ivanka Trump respond to fail pug. So basically there was an awkward hug that took place between the two of them um, and what followed were a series of tweets from the senator attempting to poke fun at the situation. Rubio's tweets even evoked a response from Ivanka Trump herself who went as far as to say that the whole thing is fake news and Marco is an excellent hugger. So oh she's starting to talk like her dad. Yeah. <laughs> so what are our thoughts on this? Was that funny and cute, or does the senator just need to focus on his job? What do we think? I just have to say, first of all, before we get into those questions, I still can't believe like Ivanka Trump is meeting with Marco Rubio. <laughs> and like when I see, because I randomly, I don't follow her on Instagram, but I randomly check her Instagram, and like I saw that picture of her and Marco Rubio, and that was like my first thought. I was like. What, what is going on? What's going on here? What's going on here? Like, why is Ivanka Trump meeting with Marco? Why is she talking about policy? I don't know. It's, it's all so. So what bizarre. do you think? Was it, was it cute? Was it a cute exchange? I mean, people are following along on social media, so. I mean, I actually, I, you had some thoughts, Krishana. <laughs> well, I thought it was really awkward and weird. Yeah. I mean, and then to have to kind of do this PR stunts around it, it kind of made me feel like I don't really know what's going on. You guys have other things that you should be working on. So, yeah, I'm not really sure how well that kind of played. But I would think that if it was a genuine hug and they kind of were coming together to, you know, talk and meet and kind of be friendly, that'd be one thing. But she, Ivanka didn't seem into it, so I'm a little concerned. <laughs> uh, not into it? Yeah, that was incredibly awkward. <laughs> I mean, the best thing I saw was uh, uh, referring to little Marco as Olaf, trying to hug the snowman, who wouldn't <laughs> hug him back. Um, I, I mean, it, it's, it was uh, painful, stilted. I think they probably made it worse by belaboring it on social media. And, I mean, it's just dredged up the fact that just a year or so ago, you know, these two 
old, you know, the Marco and her old man were debating about hand size. Um, <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, I went there. Um, yeah. It, uh, I didn't realize yeah. I was with Marco. Yeah, um, painful, painful and awkward. Yeah, well, I will oh, say yeah, I'm going to really weigh in because I just officially moved to D.C., but I voted um, in his district. I'm a for, former resident of his district, so I think, you know, he needs to stop wasting his time on nonsensical tweets and get back to work. So <laughs> I think, honestly, like that, though, what are you saying? Like, I think they're like following and trying to follow in the footsteps of like Donald Trump the president and it's mm -hmm. just not working for them like they're awkwardly doing it like you can yeah. you either can pull it off or you can't and they can't pull it off clearly <laughs> so i think i think uh we decided that not cute not working not, not cute, working <laughs> not working so next bit of swamp tea um oh yeah so we have these you know in light again of the topic we're talking about today um John Ossoff recently lost um, this highly contested 6th district in Georgia congressional race, and um, there were some tweets coming from the president about it, so Trump himself, I saw on Facebook this morning, said, well, the special elections are over, and those that want to make America great again are 5-0, and oh, exclamation point, all the fake news, all the money spent equals zero. I think Kellyanne tweeted about it, too. She said, laughing my hashtag Ossoff. So, pretty clever. Pretty clever. <laughs> right? Yeah. What are yeah. our thoughts on this? I mean, well, yesterday it was vote your ass off on our side and laughing their ass off today. I, I mean, yes, the, he's got a funny name. Um, <laughs> Good one, Kellyanne. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're going to probably talk more about it, but, yeah. um, you know, Trump probably did Karen handle every time he would tweet about the race it was a bad few moments for the Republican candidate uh, would have been good to see more from um, on our side bringing Trump into that election um, so you know I mean a win's a win no doubt but um, uh, but it came at great cost for on both sides um, and they spent a lot of money to retain a seat that his health secretary won last year with over 60% of the vote. So oh, nice. it's, um, you know, it was a tough district in the first place. Uh, today, yes, they're laughing their ass off. And we'll give them that day off. <laughs> we'll give them their dance, their dancing thing, yeah. I, mean, I was just saying earlier, too, the fact that, like, this is our president. Like, I forget, like, that sort of status popped up in my Facebook news feed, and I was like, oh, right, this isn't a character. This is, like, the president, because it's just a ridiculous way. And that example is like trickling down because now Marco Rubio, yeah. you know, is even trying to get in on. Everyone's trying to get in on it. I don't know if they're pulling it like off. Crazy, tweets. but it's kind of becoming a reality TV show. Yeah. And what's interesting too is that you know Trump asked the CBC to meet with him, and they told him no. And part of it was because they didn't want to be extras or like. Uh, you know, extra stars in this crazy reality TV show. And so, I mean, honestly, I don't know if it's working. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it seems to be working for, for him personally, he won. But yeah, I know what you say. I know what you're meaning. But that's interesting that the CBC refused to meet yeah. with him. But it definitely feels like a reality show, that's for sure. The Swamp has become very reality. But it's a, uh, yeah, it's a reality show that, I mean, everyone wants him to stop. Yeah. Like... Republicans, Mitch McConnell comes out and practically begs him to stop tweeting. There's polling that shows like 75% of Republicans wish he would stop tweeting. 
Um, yeah, they still hit like and things, but it's like you know, it's tawdry. It's it's unbecoming of the office, and it's totally unproductive. It is a reality show, but one that virtually everyone, but Trump wants to cancel. <laughs> it's like when you see, get an announcement that there's going to be another season of Big Brother, and you're like, how? Like how? Is this going to be this show? Another season of this. Yeah. People have a train wreck, I guess. That's true. <laughs> Guys, you can't pull you, your eyes you away. You don't like the train wreck, but you can't, can't turn your eyes yeah, away. You can't exactly. seem to, to pull your eyes away from this, this crew. Exactly. So should we jump right into it? Yeah, let's get into some of um, the Greg's background. Yeah. So Greg, you're from Chicago, and you went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. <laughs> Can you tell us um, a little bit of, about your life here in the swamp? the work you've been doing and the work you do in your current role? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thanks for having uh, Yeah, so yeah, grew up in the Midwest and went to the great state University of Wisconsin. Have been back in Wisconsin many times along the way for many campaigns, some of them disappointing, uh, some not, but uh, have been in the swamp for a while. Um, I moved here in the mid-90s um, to work on Capitol Hill and left for campaigns, things like that. Um, you know, the swamp, the swamp's a good place, uh, whoever's in charge. I like living here. Uh, you know, I like it more some, you know, four-year cycles than others. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's, um, it's been great. And along the way, I've done a lot of work within the Democratic Party on Capitol Hill, on um, uh, uh, Democratic campaigns, but for the last 10 years or so, have been running this organization called America Votes. Uh, we were actually founded about 15 years ago by Cecile Richards, the president of Planned Parenthood. And it was, you know, premised on a pretty simple idea that, like, there's a lot of good work in the progressive movement in politics and more broadly among organizations like Planned Parenthood and labor unions and environmental groups and um, the NAACP, etc. How do we how do we actually do it and like do it together and strategically? We were founded on the proposition that um, we do great work when we're alone. We run great campaigns and advance strategies in a shared way, in a smart and coordinated way when we do it together. So that um, idea has endured throughout that time in good elections and in bad. America Votes is sort of the coordinating uh, committee where hundreds of progressive organizations fold into a single plan to win. So you're from Florida, I could tell you, okay, here's what this local organizing group was doing in this union, all of which was towards specific goals uh, for to, last year to elect Hillary Clinton um, and defeat uh, Lil Marco um, <laughs> and avoid the travesty of ever having to see that photo. Alas, we come up, we came up a little bit short. But in a lot of ways, we're kind of the, the, the you know, the, the, the partisan equivalent would be like the DNC or a coordinated campaign, which takes the various individual component parts and turns it into one plan to mobilize progressives around candidates and more often than not, much more often than not, that translates towards Democrats. And then do that year, work year in and year out. So a lot of work we're doing right now is in the resistance piece, supporting groups uh, working on saving funding for Planned Parenthood or pushing back against health care. Some of the same tools, data, other things we use in campaigns, we bring into these issue fights and trying to stop the Trump agenda right now. And importantly, at the state level, we work in about 20 states as bad as Trump is, we've seen this movie before in states like Florida, like Wisconsin, 
where extreme right-wing Republican governors, I'm looking at the Republican in the room, uh, the, uh, have uh, been moving you know, really, really harmful agendas for years. Uh, and now, unfortunately, we're having to do that not just in the states, but nationally. So what are, yeah, what are you, you've touched on it, but what are some of the key tools you guys use to do this work? To, yeah, to sure. To promote this progressive agenda? So um, data, first of all, working from a common data set so we can see everyone who we're targeting collectively. Um, the IDs we generate, when we go to a door and we say, hey, you know, who are you going to support? Who are you going to vote for? What issue do you care about? That goes into a central repository. So we look at it, and if you answered a door or a phone four years ago, uh, by one of the groups I've mentioned, one of our many groups, we have a living, breathing repository of that data. Um, so we know more about voters that we target. We build better tools, models, things like that. Uh, another is we have an organizing platform that we provide to organizations. So everyone, uh, folks who've worked on campaigns will have done like virtual phone banks, things like that. That all is generated by a common platform for the group for progressive groups. America Votes provides the tool that cuts your walk list, that is your handheld. So you're logging that data at a door into your mobile phone. That goes back into the America Votes and by extension the groups who work with us get access to that data that you built. So it's organizing, it's data, it's things like that. And then it's, you know, sort of leadership around, all right, what are we setting out to do? What are the races we care about? Mm. How do we win? How, who, who do we expect will vote? What do we think we need to do to get there? How many voters do we need to turn out? Um, and okay, you, you know, Labor Union, you, Sierra Club, you, Planned Parenthood, uh, you, community organizing group in the ground. Here's how we're going to carve that up and actually execute a plan together to win and use those shared tools and other things to do it. Krishana, would you, you know, does, no, that, does that summarize it pretty well? I think well? it does. Yeah. I think that's a really good summary of the work we do. And I would say that even continues on some of the issue advocacy yeah. work as well. So uh, we're also working at the, with the state legislators and all 20 of our states to make sure that we're um, making sure that like voter suppression laws aren't coming. Uh, what we're really seeing a lot in this election cycle particularly is, you know, Donald Trump talked a lot about like voter fraud and, mm -hmm. and you know, all these people who voted that, you know, were illegal and weren't supposed to vote. And like what we're seeing is um, that conservative agenda is kind of like emboldening state legislators on um, in these states to kind of push and introduce these voter bills that essentially are going to strip, strip away rights for people mm -hmm. instead of making these elections, uh, modernizing them, making them safer. Yeah. So like Trump made this crazy claim about busloads of Bostonians going up to New Hampshire mm -hmm. to you know to steal the election, which is of course totally bogus. But what did New Hampshire do after they got full control? Republican was elected governor, and the conservatives had full control of the state for the first time in a long time. They changed the laws in the state to make it harder for students and and military members to define their residency in the state. Um, so. Trump, talk, Trump talks crazy talk, and um, you know he's the tail wagging the dog of the right wing who controls these states, mm. and use that rhetoric to make it harder for people to vote, which is you know everyone should be opposed to. And and there were some Republicans we got on board in New Hampshire, not enough of them, to try to stop that. Um, but we do, uh, as Krishana said, a lot of work. We kind of have everyone do their issues. And we work with them specifically on voting rights and, um, and in some states expanding the right to vote, not just fighting these defensive votes. Got it. So you wanted to ask about the voting, the Voting Right Act in specific. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to 
say really quick. So yeah, I mean, before we get into that, she can ask about the voter right acts. What are you guys? How do you guys fight these 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 kind of re regressive voting laws like the one you just mentioned in New Hampshire? So mobilizing a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, We've had, um, you know, and this is New Hampshire, mind you, so, you know, getting hundreds and hundreds of people out uh, is, you know, in a small part, cross-section of the state. Mobilizing a lot of people at state capitals uh, to protest, to rally. It's been part of the resistance effort uh, that we've seen on so many issues in that particular state. Being, you know, smart and strategic about it. Contacting legislators, you know, get a lot of calls, but not nearly as many as members of Congress and stuff. And usually not on issues like voter ID. So in Michigan, the Republicans uh, at the end of last year in what's you know you know lame duck session from after the election until the swearing of a new one tried to sneak through a voter ID bill. Um, we worked with a lot of our partners who have a lot of like retired union members in rural Michigan. The message was simple: This is good. you're you're going to have to get an ID if you don't have it. You're going to have to drive hundreds of miles in some cases to some county office in the sticks. We think of this as a, you know, this certainly is aimed to disenfranchise urban, you know, certainly communities of color especially, but it impacts everyone. Old folks, rural voters that don't have some particular kind of ID. And in that case, we got a lot of them to call their state senators, uh, a lot of Republicans, and say, no, this is terrible. And they actually pulled the bill. Um, so, like, I, I have a few questions about the voter ID laws, but um, just for our listeners, can you, um, can, let's talk about the Voting Rights Advancement Act. Yeah. Um, that was introduced by Congressman, uh, or I'm sorry, Congresswoman Terry Sewell of Alabama. Um, I know a big part of that discussion is the voter ID laws, but can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that just uh, to, get, to give our listeners some background? Yeah. Um, so, this might get a little wonky. Uh, so warning. Um, so this was an effort uh, Congresswoman Sewell from Alabama um, introduced last year um, and is reintroducing soon is our understanding. Um, to So the Supreme Court essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act. They cut a key provision that said Section 5. Um, technically they cut Section 4, but it had the effect of nullifying Section 5, which said that uh, jurisdictions with a history of discrimination have to pre-clear changes to voting laws. So in uh, Alabama, if um, in most of that state, if you were going to change the location of a precinct, uh, that's a change in the voting law. You would have to notify the Justice Department that it doesn't that of the change, and it would be assessed to make sure it didn't have a negative impact on uh, minority voters. And that had been in effect for 40 years, um, more than 40 years, leading into um, this last election. And the Supreme Court gutted it and said you could no longer keep these jurisdictions, you know, under you know their discrimination they did 40 years ago. Um, so that Supreme Court case, Roberts wrote the opinion. Uh, what did all those places do? As soon as they were free and clear from oversight from DOJ. Mm -hmm. They passed a ton of horrible voting laws. Oh, wow. The best example is North Carolina. It's called the Monster Law, which was everything but the kitchen sink effort to make it as hard as possible for uh, black voters, brown voters, and young voters to vote in that state. Prior to that, you could register. They could pre-register high school students. It was part of a curriculum. When you were junior, senior, heading into the age of 18, as part of your 
uh, civics class, social studies class. You'd be educated about voting. And it would end with pre-registration. If you were going to be 18 by the next election, part of the class was, hey, register to vote. Mm. Well, they did away with that. Mm. Why? To make it harder for young people to vote. They actually asked, when the Republicans in the uh, legislature of North Carolina passed this bill, they kind of screwed up, and it's since been thrown out in court, because they asked specifically the various voting offices across the state for data based on race to see which methods of voting white voters used and which black voters used. So they could be as precise as possible in, in doing away with avenues of voting that black folks used and making it as easy as possible for white voters. So when they created the ID law, I'll just finish real fast. When they created the ID law, they of course, you know, said no to student IDs, but if you have a hunting and fishing license, well, that's permissible. And that was all based on, you know, their assumption, but they actually asked for data showing, yeah, white folks have those hunting licenses and it's the younger and and less white populations have these student licenses, uh, student IDs. It's really fascinating stuff. Well, I was just, you know, you hear a lot about low voter turnout in general. So in the last, like, presidential election, at least, it was, like, 50% of the voting population didn't vote. Does this play into low voter turnout, these types of laws? Or would you say, or is that even quantifiable? Or Because it seems like one of the issues is just low t- voter turnout, period. Um, like... So, but does this kind of stuff play into that low voter turnout or is that a separate issue? I mean, it does to some degree. I mean, by complicating the process of, of, you know, engaging it, you know, you're going to get some folks say, ah, what do I need? Forget it. Um, But it's, low voter turnout is kind of, in my view, kind of its own issue that we need to get people more engaged. We saw the effect last year in a place like Wisconsin with a very restrictive ID law where it's estimated as many as 200,000 voters who intended to vote were turned away. So it's like, these are voters, what they're, what they're trying to do is take the population of voters who do want to engage mm. and raise the burden as high as possible mm. to make it so they can't. Okay. And, and so if we look at some of the demographics of the last election, um, you know, it was like white suburban conservative voters, especially women, that really came out for Trump. Yeah. Um, and I know you've written a little bit about the implications of the changing demographics and yeah. sort of, you know, the GOP's failure to reach out to Hispanics and other minority groups. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the Republicans are, you know, they're, they're on a ticking time bomb and they're doing these things because they know it. Um, the challenge is that the, you know, the demographic transfer, uh, transformation in the country is happening. It's going to happen. If they're going to win in 10, 20 years, they are going to have to compete for the votes of the voters they are trying to disenfranchise now, or they will lose. But in the last election, certainly we saw an increase in you know, white working class is how, you know, uh, especially uh, white working class, white voters without college IDs turned out at higher rates than they did before, four years ago. Um, On the whole, um, African-American voters, uh, Latino voters, um, younger voters turned out at lesser rates. Though, you know, given Obama, given, you know, Obama and Romney, it was expected that both those things would, you know, there'd be a little bit of uh, reversion Mm -hmm. after 2012. 
but you know the the spike in particular of uh, white working class turnout was you know was a huge factor in Trump winning. It doesn't mean that that's the long term. You know that's not the future of the country. It's how long you know does that actually enable that electorate enable Republicans to you know turn off everyone else and make it as hard for them to vote. Ultimately, you know demographics will be destiny. Unless, frankly, they start competing for the votes of black and brown voters and younger voters. Um, but, you know, that is going to take time. And, and one of the lessons of this election is, um, you know, for Democrats to be successful, they've got to keep their coalition, the Obama coalition together and do better among, um, you know, working class voters and others. It's not it can't be an either or. It's got to be a both and. So that, like that, and in, in, in addition, the voter ID laws that disenfranchise, um, you know, African American and Hispanic communities. Um, so, so all of that sort of you're saying plays a role in. Um, oh yeah, it, play, you know. it played. I mean, it um, when we say, you know, let's say African American turnout went down in Milwaukee, a factor in that definitely is ID. But many of those voters intended to turn out. I mean, that's how odious it is. These are people who were, um, you know, legitimate voters who wanted to engage. And there's a lot of data to suggest. And remember, Hillary won lost that state by like less than 20,000 votes. Mm -hmm. And it's estimated 200,000 voters who wanted to vote were turned away because of voter ID. I mean, that clearly would have cost her the election. And those are voters who wouldn't be reflected necessarily in the turnout. Because they weren't, they wanted to turn out, they weren't allowed to. So also, I mean, at the heart of this discussion, you know, some people are saying, you know, there's discrimination or, you know, but then, you know, fraud is also a component of this. Um, so what do you say, you know, because a lot of people, they, you know, for example, Marco Rubio, uh, he, we keep, we keep talking about Marco Rubio, but his response to, you know, voter ID laws has been, you know, what's the big deal? We show IDs to board a flight, to run sports equipment, you know. Um, so what, what's your response to people that say that, you know, um, it's more about like securing the voting process to make sure that this is, you know, the most, you know, a secure and, and verifiable process? Um, I got, I mean, a ton of arguments against that. Um, you know, going to, I, they used, the one they used to trot out on this was Blockbuster. In fact, they kept using that analogy, Blockbuster Video, like much longer than Blockbuster Video even existed. They're like, well, you need a car to rent a movie. Um, or you need a, uh, but yeah, but those, this is, um, this is not, you know, those are commercial activities. Those are, you're opting in to spend money and engage in the, you know, a commercial activity. This is a fundamental right for people as citizens. And so, I mean, I would say to that, and, and, you know, we have, we've supported automatic voter registration in several places, which is, all right, let's take this out. Why, why is the burden on the voter? So the government has all kinds of data about you, from uh, social service databases to DMV data, if you have a car. Like, there are, the state has all sorts of data that indicates who you are and whether you're a citizen. And if it doesn't indicate whether you're a citizen, well, we can get that information. And why are we placing the burden on the voter to have to register and go through all these odious restrictions to cast a vote instead of just, like, make it a function the way we do Social Security? I mean, this is not hard. 
And so in states that have done that, Oregon and California now have automatic registration. You have to opt out. Otherwise, you're on the rolls, and you can cast a vote, and we update those databases because from the mail to everything, you're like, you know, there's information out there that the government could easily put the burden on it to track everyone who's eligible to vote and make their ability to cast one as easy as possible. Why do we even have to be talking? I mean, there's a good reason why you have to show an ID to get on a plane. It has nothing to do with, like, the fact you are there and it's it's in a whole other consideration all we need to know when you're voting is you're eligible and you should have that franchise it's it's completely nonsensical and moving to something like automatic registration like a couple states in the south even west virginia has passed this by the way would actually do away with this whole debate and do away with voter fraud do away with registration fraud um like it would do it all and um, you know we'd like to see more of that but in the meantime we'd like to make it as easy as possible uh, for everyone who's eligible to cast a vote it shouldn't be that complicated and it shouldn't be a partisan issue this is crazy yeah I mean honestly that does sound <laughs> that sounds sensible to me but right um, okay. so let's get in yeah let's get <laughs> well um, I, I have I do have one oh, other reaction okay, just okay. one other reaction yeah. I found a CNN article from May 2012 um, that talked about how there were some people in the Hispanic community that were insulted um, by the idea that um, you know that that you know, it's it's sort of the idea that Hispanics are too inept to get an ID. Wait, you know? is that, wait say that again? There, there is a CNN article, mm-hmm. so the title is uh, Voter ID Laws, Fraud, and Latinas. Discrimination, a big deal, or insulting? And there were some people in the article that said um, that it was insulting the idea that, that people think Hispanics are, are too inept to get an ID. Oh. Um, do you have any response? That sounds like that sounds like fake news. <laughs> no, you yeah. can look it up. CNN, May 2012. No, I know. I'm just well, saying, I'm just May saying. 2012, CNN offered up some fake. Well, I mean, it looks. I mean, I'm not going to tell anyone they're not entitled to their opinion. But right. why would it? Why would I be arguing that? That that doesn't make any sense. But here's here's what I mean, that's, that's sure that's an opinion. But like, I mean, here's the here's a here's a real true fact about ID. Um, so in the black community, in places where they've passed this, like Pennsylvania, which was thrown out in court, Wisconsin, there are a lot of folks who were born in the South, older folks, who guess what? In Wisconsin, if you don't have currently have an ID to get one, you need a birth certificate. Older black folks who grew up in the Jim Crow South were not issued birth certificates. Oh, wow, okay. That's like, that's real fact. And it is, apart from everything else, it is, uh, it's unjust and it ignores the inhumane history that voting is intertwined with in huge parts of this country that like this argument about convenience and everything is so besides the point. Mm. It's making it less convenient. Okay. But it's a fundamental right. There shouldn't be a barrier. There are ways to do it better. Uh, the Republican Party cares about its long-term history uh, and trajectory. They'll get over this issue um, because what it does is they're ultimately going to have to compete. And I look forward to it, like them actually really competing for the votes of black voters uh, and Hispanics in a real way. Um, That'd be a good thing. 
Um, but they are, by doing this, by making it harder for the country as it is to represent themselves, they're getting crazier. They are the worst elements and the most right-wing elements gets too much voice. And they are setting themselves up by denying the people a voice. They're, it's going in a bad direction. And, um, you know, they're getting a benefit from it. I wouldn't say it doesn't have an impact. It has a real one. You know, if we can find some sane, sage voices someday in the Republican Party, they'll realize that this is a fight with diminishing returns. That, first of all, it's the right thing to do, but it's going to be in their interest someday to not be on the wrong side of this. Right. Especially, as we mentioned, like, the, with demographics, changing demographics. Yeah. I mean, what's right. up? But then what's happening right now? Because just to jump into the, the recent race in Georgia, the 6th Congressional District. Yeah, and, and kind of, you know, this is reflecting to me a little bit of the presidential election. You know, they pouring, they're pouring so much money into these Democratic candidates and they're still losing. Like, what's going wrong here? Um, I actually have a quote I wanted to read. <laughs> it's from Facebook. It's a random Facebook <laughs> quote. Um, and the person wrote... Seems we spent $30 million to get 48% in Georgia and went to nothing to get 48% in South Carolina. One has to wonder what impact $30 million would have if it was directed to state Democratic parties instead of a gazillion TV ads, and Ossoff didn't exactly have as much of an aspirational or progressive message, so maybe try standing for something and investing in grassroots instead. Would that be the lesson? And again, I was saying this, I felt like, for me personally, from yeah. my perspective, this kind of reflected the national election because talk a lot about this voting stuff but to me from my perspective I felt like there was a lack of messaging a lack of really good messaging uh -huh. and also not really speaking to real progressive issues from a progressive standpoint yep. so how, how you know yeah. how do we get around that issue and or do you guys do work on that at all um yeah and you might not even agree with me but that's kind of my well, opinion that I like don't... we were having a real like issue with speaking to real progressive issues and yeah, I think um, also just speaking to real issues yeah, um, that translated to, I mean, you know, there was, I've seen some focus groups since the election where people were like, it was a group of the so-called, you know, white working class and rural Midwest, and then um, uh, African American younger voters um, in uh, more urban areas of Florida and Detroit, and they were saying the exact, exact same thing, like, they had they voted differently or didn't vote at all in the case of some, but nobody was speaking to him. Like the election was all esoteric and about you know is he fit for the office and first, you know, and that nothing you know was translating in terms of really speaking to things they cared about. And you know that's been a I think a fair critique of how the whole campaign was prosecuted. The Ossoff and you know you know this is tough because like we gotta. Like, it's not wrong to say moral victories are, you know, pretty hollow. Like, you got to win, ultimately. Mm -hmm. But a ton of attention's been paid on... I remember when Trump was picking this rogues gallery of a cabinet he's got and thinking... My first concern was, oh, we're going to have a bunch of special elections and, you know, a lot of my progressive base is going to get excited about winning them, but we're never going to have a chance to win. We're never going to have a chance to win. But in each of them we kind of had a chance to win. Um, and, you know, it wasn't money poorly spent. We can talk strategy in a minute, but, like, investing heavily in Georgia 6 wasn't a bad bet. It was still awfully close in the end, right? And um, now, you know, $30 bucks is a lot of money, 
but I didn't, you know, in the end, um, I, I thought it was winnable. Um, but we got to remember, like, this is Newt Gingrich's old dis- district. I mean, this has been like, this was a southern district that became Republican before the South became Republican. I mean, they've been this way and have remained that way for a long time. Tom Price won by with 62% of the vote. So they didn't like Trump, but they the same voters, you know, Trump won by just a point, like 49, 48. Uh, but Tom Price got 62%. So they were saying, okay, I'm not going to vote for Trump, but I'm going to vote for this Republican. I can make that choice. But what happened yesterday? Handel gets 10 points lower. Trump isn't on the ballot. So the same people who said, I can vote for Congress, I, I, I'm going to plug my nose, it's a wealthy, educated, it's, it's the kind of Republican who are drifting away from the party, but they're not that far yet. But still, with a huge turnout, a lot of them would have voted for Price and yesterday voted for Ossoff. Now, that's not a win. Like, you know, there's only so long we can keep saying that, but Montana, similar thing. I mean, clearly, a lot of folks shifted their votes. Uh, we'll come to South Carolina in a minute. But these are, the, you know, we've done this Wichita, Kansas. My God, that district was over, you know, even more Republican than all these others. And uh, Thompson wins, loses by just a handful of points. Not a win. It's not going to win us power. Mm. But something's going on here. Okay. Ossoff, I mean, here's, I, I, I really respect him. I think they ran a good campaign. He, from the beginning, started off with this message. Uh Make Trump furious. That was his like initial message. And then the money from online just started pouring in. Why? Because our net roots and grassroots wanted to make Trump furious. This district does not like Donald Trump. His approval in a poll just a week before the election was 37%. Ossoff, who I, again, I think, you know, he didn't screw anything up. Like, you know, a lot of pressure. 30-year-old, first-year candidate with all this national... Like, po- pretty poised and everything. Mm. But his message was awfully milk toast. I mean, it was like pure. And you know what he never said? Mm. Make Trump furious. So he said, I'm a smart pragmatist. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to come to D.C. and do all this. But in the end, and that was up against the Republicans. We all talk about Ossoff's money. They poured in dark money from God knows where almost as much in. From all Paul Ryan's friends and the Cokes and all the billionaires. They spent it, and they've got the money, but they spent a ton of money too. And what did they do? I mean, there were, there's mail pieces of them literally showing Asaf's face being ripped off with Pelosi's face underneath it. Like, so he's talking, yeah, pragmatic, I got these, you know, smart, sensible solutions. And they're just, like, making it a referendum on New, uh, Washington, D.C. Democrats and San Francisco and New York liberals, right. even though his money actually came from all over the country, not just there. So what if he'd said, make Trump furious, send me to Washington to fix the place and do these things? He went out of his way not to inject Trump. And mm. I'm sure they saw some polls and had good reason. But, like, man, we're in a time where, like, this midterm and all these special elections are going to be referendums on someone. We need them to be referendums on Donald Trump. And then tell us all the wonderful things you're about and the special things you bring, uh, your wonderful 30-year, you know, life and history of being a filmmaker. But start with, like, saying, hey, you want to make Trump furious? Because even a lot of Republicans in this district are tired of him tweeting. And, like, 
all this stuff. And so what got them the 30 million bucks and what they communicated with uh, in this district were very, very different. And they probably have to be. Like, it's, you know, it's still, you know, you got to win a lot of Republicans. But they're not going to vote for you unless they want to make Trump furious. Like, you got to sell that first and then your virtues. And they didn't do that at all. And I don't don't understand why. I'm sure they had a reason. They're not dumb. But like, and then on the last, and I'll and I'll shut up after this. S- South Carolina, yeah, we could have shifted thirty million bucks there, and but did you see the turnout in South Carolina? It was like a third of what Georgia was. So if we'd shifted fifteen of those thirty to South Carolina, which is a more Republican district actually than the Georgia one, they didn't spend any money over there either. So they would have turned out a lot more Republicans. I mean, I think we would have seen a similar result. Much closer than it should be. Um, Democrats gaining a lot of votes, you know. Uh, if it's a better district, we're going to win. But the idea that, like, hey, it's, you know, that this was this missed... Th- they didn't spend either. This was, like, so low-radar race that if you look at the turnout, it's very clear um, the black turnout was pretty good. A lot of Republican rural turnout was not. And with, you know, if we'd engaged, the other side would engage, and it would have been a whole different kind of electorate so I, I think it's it, it's the, those are not either you know it's it's, it's wrong not black people. and white kind yeah of it's not at all yeah there's different things going on um I was gonna say sorry we can cut this out just yeah okay should we because we're running to like 30 minutes now should we go I mean I have like one or two more questions yeah we didn't really get into you can you can chop mine down but yeah, <laughs> yeah. well do you I mean do you, do you guys mind if we go like 10 minutes more yeah it's fine okay all right totally all right um, You're good? Because you know. wanted to ask about... Well, I was going to ask you about redistricting. Yeah. I was also going to actually just say... Um, like, we could, like, fast forward to 2020. Because that they're going to redraw... That's when states redraw, right? The boundaries. After, so, 2020 election and then after. Okay. So, like, 2021 and 2022. Um, so... Oh, I had a quote, but that's okay. Okay, well, I'll ask you... I'll just ask, like, about okay. the redistricting stuff, and then you okay. have one more you wanted to add. I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I might. I, I actually had a quote about the length of elections, because talking about how the Georgia elections actually went longer than the French elections. No, I totally, saw that. You saw that. Okay, well, why don't we... Yeah, we'll okay. ask that question, then we'll get into okay. redistricting. Yeah, okay. okay. So, yeah, just to finish this OSEF discussion, like, I saw somewhere today, you know, someone saying how this Georgia election basically took longer than the whole of the French kind of presidential yeah, elections. And yeah. what, what are you, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think we hear that complaint a lot. Like, our elections are too long. They're, the cycles are, they just drag. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who, I mean, other than, you know, political consultants who, you know, make a lot of money on it, like who wouldn't want them shorter um the, i mean we have this pesky thing called the first amendment and france and england and most of the rest of the world don't meaning that they dictate when you can campaign like there's a prescribed period it's not just that the elections happened i mean yeah it's crazy france had the the pre presidential yeah, like the runoff and then the same for the parliament, all in the time between, you know, the two Georgia elections, which yeah. is just insane. Yeah. So that can be fixed. I mean, states can certainly shrink the time between these, um, you know, runoff elections and the first one. But, you know, there's no easy fix to, we're, you know, we're never, this country will never, nor probably should it, say, no, you can only campaign in a six-week window like it is in the U.K. 
Like, it's, I mean, that's... It's not gonna happen. It ain't gonna happen. No. So we gotta put up with it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's a problem, though, because I, I do think it, as you said earlier, you know, it feeds into... People are tired of it. They want to turn it off. It feeds into cynicism. Uh, I just have no idea how... To get around it. How to get, get around the first it. First Amendment. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Okay, well, then I just wanted to finish off by talking about redistricting. So this is something you guys work on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can you just, first of all, talk to us, like, what is redistricting? What is redistricting? So, yeah. And then, the wor- and then get into the work you are doing on it. Yep. Yeah. So redistricting is the process after every 10 years, after every census. Um, the Constitution mandates that one person, one vote, that you draw district lines based on where voters live. Um, for Congress, you reapportion seats from the states that have grown and gained population to states, or from states that have shrunk to states that have grown. And so you're essentially right-sizing, it should be, essentially right-sizing districts. Um, it's become a much more partisan political process. It kind of always has been, but it's become much more so, much more focused on gerrymandering than there, than there ever has been now. It just seems, I don't know, so question, it seems like no matter which way you redistrict, either side is going to say no, you know, is that kind of the reality that it, you know, no matter how you look at it, it's. Yeah, I mean, yes, Um, the gerrymander can be all in the eye of the beholder or the party that's, you know, getting screwed versus the other one. Yeah. Um, But what happened in 2010 is like, and, you know, in part because of um, innovations in data and other things, the ability to draw maps so precisely, um, coupled with the fact that the Republicans won so much power in 2010, they didn't have to cut deals and cut a new deal. They could make, they can use every tool they could to make the maps as gerrymandered and advantageous for Republicans as ever. So, you know, gerrymanders, I mean, there have been some studies of this. Yeah, gerrymandering has always been around. But some measures of like how many votes are wasted, how many truly competitive districts there are, how many people have no meaningful vote show that this decade. I mean, it's off the charts compared to any previous gerrymander that sort of by comparison was just like fiddling around the margins. I mean, this is a surgical strike um, in a lot of states aimed at locking in Republican majorities, no matter, you know, how the voters vote overall. So Wisconsin has taken their fight to the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that briefly? Yeah. Um, So this case, I forget the exact name of the case. But it came from Wisconsin. It's the first case to make an argument about partisan gerrymandering in a long time that's getting to the court. And it's been kind of the media's, you know, typically sort of not quite gotten it right. There, it's not a case to end partisan gerrymandering. It's a case that attempts to try to set a standard for how much is too much. Um, so there are various measures I won't bore your listeners with for how you do that. But what it tries to say is that here's a framework where gerrymandering is permissible between say 40 and 60 like just in this mid-range but once you're getting to this extreme you're actually disenfranchising voters that you are that democrats or you know if the shoe were on the other foot republicans were having were being substantively disenfranchised because no matter how voters voted in that state the the composition of a state legislature or the congressional delegation was going to stay the same. So in Wisconsin, part of their data in making this case 
is that in 2012, Democrats won the vast won a majority of votes for the state legislature, and got were way in the minority in terms of seats. Two years later, in 2014, Republicans won a majority of the legislature, and the margin in the legislature was exactly the same. So the map rigged it either way. No matter how the state voted, you were going to have literally the same party winning in the state legislature. Um, so there's absolutely no – that disenfranchises one party, a member of the Democratic Party in those districts or in another district is not having its voice heard because this gerrymander is extreme. And then it would set a standard that a court could judge that, okay, this is permissible. We know this is a partisan process. But this by, if it goes this far, now you're substantively disenfranchising a whole class of people. And elections essentially don't matter, which has been the case um, in the Wisconsin legislature. So what kind of things are you doing to ameliorate this situation? What kind of work do you guys... Um, well, we do. I mean, first of all, we are... Um, with our work on elections, um, uh, so this, you know, we're a, uh, we're a progressive organization. We're not a party committee. But this is, you know, this is... So just really quick, so does yeah. that mean, like, because I phone bank from Ernie, full disclosure. Uh -huh. So was that, like, those phone banking <laughs> stuff that I could do from home, that was um, you guys then? Or? No, that was for Bernie. Oh, okay. <laughs> but if one of our groups had been supporting of Bernie, they might have used the same tool. Okay. Independent, you know, an independent expenditure. They talk about them like super PACs, but a lot of organizations do it. So it's not coordinated with the campaign. It's outside. Okay. So... Uh, yeah. And you said you said you're not partisan. Your no, they're, they're they're. We support progressives. But oh, okay. Not oh, okay. All right. Okay. So, not, not, okay. so we have a huge interest in undoing gerrymandering. Okay. Um, especially, we're very focused on states. So you know, by Republicans having such a hammerlock on things, they're pushing a horrible agenda for progressives and the dream agenda for Coke and the conservatives. Budget, you know, reproductive freedom, the environment, you name it. So we and many of our groups are extremely focused on winning power at the state level, be it a governor's office, a legislative chamber, one, to advance our issues, but two, to have a seat at the table for Democrats to undo these gerrymanders that are just screw, you know, screwing over our issues right and left. So the first piece would be being very focused on state elections, specifically looking at governor's races in 2018, where are these legislative chambers that even though they're badly gerrymandered in many cases, Trump is going to be, you know, maybe it's a landslide that really puts those majorities in play. That is about redistricting because the governors elected in 2018 will be the ones who sign or veto uh, new maps under the next redistricting. So in many ways, 2018 is really, you know, going to tell the tale of how the next redistricting happens. So there's a big piece on that. And in some states, um, working with some um, allies in the uh, political reform community, um, in some states we're engaged in efforts to take politics completely out of the process. Um, we were active in Florida, um, which, create, which passed something called Fair Districts, which sets standards similar to what Wisconsin's trying to do in the Supreme Court. It said, you can draw the map legislature, but you have to do it according to these standards. You cannot go overboard in terms of partisan gerrymandering, um, racial gerrymandering. Um, it sets standards that um, make the process more fair. 
and you know, from uh, wearing whatever hat you're wearing, um, the, I, the interest of the Democratic Party, the interest of progressives, frankly, the interest of democracy, the more sort of even-handedness and fairness, we would take that. Um, that would be a good outcome. Um, uh, that if you simply saw more competitive elections as a result of a more fair process, that's great. If we're not going to change the process, we don't want a bunch of conservative Republicans drawing the map to their benefit again. And that's where the work in 2018 in state elections is going to be so important. So how can, just to finish it off, how can young people get involved? How can people get involved in, in these types of issues, um, you know, in terms of... Yeah, and, and what like you know what else do you want? Uh, do you think millennials should be aware of um, the millennials? Yeah, uh, yeah. In regards to twenty eighteen and twenty twenty. Well, turn out. Um, I mean, the big takeaway is, look, redistricting is going to affect the next decade. Um, you know, we've got a ways to go to twenty twenty. The elections that happened in twenty eighteen are going to determine. Who's in charge of drawing maps, how fair those processes are, you name it, for well beyond that. So get engaged in this midterm election, despite how tired you are about hearing about elections and fatigue around all that. Um, turn out. Don't stop at the top. Every office matters, not just because of redistricting, because so much, I mean, living here in D.C., you know, I care as greatly about my who's my city council person that has a huge impact on me and along the way who's in who's in charge at the state level is going to have a dramatic impact on um, how quote-unquote redistricting gets fixed or how it happens going forward so if you want to you know if you want to you know not have Paul Ryan and his you know ilk in you know running the country for another 10 years um, uh, get involved in state elections Get involved in the process, not just redistricting form, but a whole host of government reforms that need to happen. Money in politics, uh, public financing in some places being pursued. Um, these are, you know, in my view, um, uh, both personal and in some of those instances with regard to where America Votes prioritizes. Those are big, important things. Um, the health of this democracy needs a lot of work. I mean, anything that results in Donald Trump sitting where he sits today something's got to be kind of screwed up. Um, and it's not just about what happened, you know, last November. We've been going in a bad way for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting place to end. I, I read an article today about that, too, that kind of this has been sort of an accumulation and a buildup and the health, this issue yeah. with the health of our democracy. Um, so, but, I mean, you're ending on a whole, you, you see hope then. You see hope for resuscitation? Um, yeah, I do. Um you know, unfortunately, it may be because um, Trump is so bad and so odious and is, you know, I mean, that um, you're that we're just not going to have to talk to people the same way about the stakes they have in an election when you can have um, uh, such a buffoon in such a powerful office um, and the practical implications of that on communities and um you know, I mean, millennials, you know, there, there definitely were issues with turnout, but they didn't support Trump. They don't support Trump. Um, and, you know, but Trump and his agenda and, frankly, Trump's America have way too much say-so right now. And they're going to, you know, we're all going to have to live with the consequences of that. Um, but to the hope part, um, I hope we don't have to tell people about how important it is and why it matters and um, why you can't sit out. Um, and what we've seen, you know, we talked about Georgia and all this. 
you know, turnout is up. Sometimes it's up on both sides. Sometimes it's only on one side. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of engagement right now. A lot of energy in the resistance movements and at the ballot box. And I'm not sure. You know, after 2018, if you know, and certainly after 2020, we don't look back and see that you know. Uh, from the interest of progressives and Democrats, but also for the health of the democracy, that this wasn't kind of a, a breaking point and a uh, part where uh, things began to get better. The problem is, the, you know, what you got to walk through between here and there to get there. Um, so I'm hopeful, um, uh, you know, but um, it's tough sometimes day to day. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah, I didn't mean that on such a heavy note. No, 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 I think, yeah. I mean, I think, again, I think from our perspective, we need to see some young, fresh yeah. faces, more diverse faces yes. of people of people running. Um, and again, not just that are also speaking to issues that are important but um, to everyone. But Yeah, but I'm but encouraged yeah. by what I've seen. I mean, there, there are a lot of people wanting to run, and it is. They're younger. They look like America. They're more, they're more diverse. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll end on a positive note. Yeah, right? Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Hey, thank Krishna you, guys. And Greg for pleasure. joining yeah. us. Had um, fun. Thanks for coming down to the Georgetown yeah. Swamp. Um, and yeah. don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Swamp Podcast and at The Swamp DC on Facebook. We love to hear from you and love your comments. I feel thanks, like guys. Thank you. Yeah. I say what I want. Okay. I go where I want. Okay. I don't pay attention, I do anything I want You people jerks, you suck Look, I think I heard enough I said I, I said I feel like Donald Trump